But there was a point where you were physically breaking. How do you know? How the fuck do you know this? I never told anybody this. I might have mentioned it once or twice in my whole life. Yes, we were setting them up. How the fuck do you know? <laughs> what are you fucking talking to my, listening to my conversations? And excuse me for the intro. <laughs> do, you, do what you have to do. <laughs> What's up, everyone? And welcome to the Wide Awake Podcast. My name is Joshua Rubin, and I am your host. Today, my guest is Michael Dowd. He is the dirtiest cop in the history of New York City. During the 80s, Michael patrolled the streets of Brooklyn. He was also the leader of a ruthless criminal network that stole money and drugs, ultimately resulting in New York's biggest corruption scandal ever. Mike served 12 years in prison for his activities during that time and is widely considered as one of the most corrupt cops of all time. Amen. Is that true? <laughs> well, that's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about that? Well, if you look me up, I don't make the top rankings of, of the top 20 dirtiest cops, but I think overall the activity that I was involved in just brought to light the, uh, the depths of the scandalous activity that was taking place at that time. And not just my own, but in total. And just to start off with, where were you born? So I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah. Uh, probably within four miles from where I ended up working in Brooklyn, but of course, like most civil servants, my father was a firefighter and we, he moved his family out to Long Island because it was affordable and had, there was grass, you know, a place to raise children. And uh, so there were seven children in the family and I was number three of the seven. And what were you like growing up? I was actually a very good kid. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was the model son. Yeah. And uh, that's, the, that's the odd thing when I look back at my life and I say to myself, where the hell did I go wrong. But I, I, and I break it down to, to several different places because one of the things that I learned as while growing up was that uh, you're, you're supposed to be more than what your father is. I mean, I, I don't know if they still teach that today, but that's how I was raised. And, and my father was a firefighter. So by being a police officer, it was basically the same, you know, uh, status in life. So he always drilled into me, you know, you got to be more, you got to be a doctor or a lawyer or some kind of an accountant or something like that. So I went to accounting school and uh, I did fairly well at it, but um, I took the civil service tests as backup and um, well, the backup became plan B and A all at once. So I became a police officer. And just before we get into any of that, can you just list some of the crimes that you were accused of? Well, it starts. <laughs> that's it starts out as rack. Well, you know, because it's funny. Because what's funny about it, which is not funny, right? But what's hilarious about the whole concept is many of us have done the same things in this world. It's just that I've been found guilty of it, or at least admitted to it. So, racketeering, extortion, um, gambling, uh, robbery, um, larceny. Uh, Robbery, <laughs> robbery again, <laughs> robbery again. I mean, you know, you have a gun on you whenever you take something from someone, it's a robbery. And when you use force, it's a robbery. So that was probably one of my most acclaimed uh, crimes was robbing drugs, selling drugs, snorting drugs, uh, you know, sharing drugs, stealing drugs, and perpetuating criminal organizations by helping them to, um, to perpetuate their business, you know. And why did you decide to become a police officer? Well, I decided to become a police officer because uh, I, I intimated earlier uh, that I, um, it was a backup plan to my actual 
dream careers, which were in some kind of uh, profession, uh, i.e., in my case, uh, accounting. I had sought an accounting career, but you know, I tell you what happened. So along the way, I my my accounting instructor in in um, Suffolk County Community College, Mr. Weinstein. I think he's still there today. I'm not sure, but I know he was a couple of years ago. And uh, I sat down with him one day, and I said to him. You know, I have an opportunity to take the police job or continue on in accounting school. And he, he looked at me and he said, accounting's not for everybody. He said, and your type personality, do you want to sit behind a desk for 20 or 30 years? And I just said, oh, no. <laughs> Sitting behind a desk, I didn't really fit too well. It's hard for me to sit for an hour podcast, right? Mm. So uh, I, I, as soon as he said that, I said, you know, I, and I had no mentors. Like, so... I grew up in a, in a civil service family. My, my father was a firefighter. My uncles were police officers. And so I was used to that lifestyle. And so, you know, it's, it's almost like you just go right into it. So it was easy enough for me to matriculate right into being a police officer in that respect. So it, it, it sort of fell into it, you know. And what was your training like? As a police officer? Yeah. What kind of training did you go through? Um, so I would say being trained as a police officer is more, um, it's not so f as physical as it should be, by the way. It should be more physically demanding, I would recommend. Uh, but it's more mental and sociological um, uh, training, i.e. teaching people how to uh, learn to deal with other cultures and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, the law itself as you go over the law and how it applies to things. So, yeah, so um, it's, it's more book work. And more like college. So going to the police academy, I would equate, equate more like going to college. And then as far as the physical activity involved, I'd say it's like going to college and playing on a sports team, but not at A level, more at B and C level, because the physical activity is just not quite stringent enough. One of the things that was mentioned in the documentary made about you was the integrity training. Right, yes. Can, sure. you, can you tell me about that? <laughs> well, what? what? <laughs> What's to say the integrity training was a farce? To be, to, to be blunt, it was a farce. And I, just give me one second. And and why I say it was a farce is because, and I, and I say this with with real uh, vigor, they should have had a guy like me teaching the integrity training, not because of my level of integrity, obviously, but because by showing what happens to people when they go off the integrity rail and go on the other side, because. We had people come in from internal affairs and speak to us, and they spoke in generalities, and and they give you a couple of examples of got people that got uh, got in trouble, but they don't instill in you the you don't you don't become imbued, filled with the integrity aspect. You become imbued with the brotherhood aspect in the academy, but the integrity aspect becomes the question of. Try not to get to that area where your integrity is is called into question. Called into question. So how do you prevent that? So the a whole integrity training was to prevent that from being the case. That's how I took it, and I think I would suggest most people did because there's no different than anybody in the academy. That just to not get in a predicament where your integrity would be questioned. And so what does that mean? So that really basically means is have somebody with you, another police officer, that would agree with you. So, so someone questions an act of integrity that may have come your way that uh, you have someone to co-sign on whatever the activity was that you did. 
So someone might suggest that you took some, some money from them. And that, by the way, happens quite often while it's usually not accurate. Usually. In my case, it would have been the opposite probably. But uh, what you people thought you took less than you did. No. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, no. Well, they always they always you're always accused of taking more than you take, no matter what. Okay. That's generally the rule of thumb. But I I even if you take nothing, you get accused of it. And that's the, that's the horrible thing about being a police officer. Oftentimes, you'll get accused of doing something that you didn't do because people want to lessen the burden of the crime that, that, that they themselves have committed. And they want to turn the focus on what they've done to you. So you're saying that you think police officers get treated worse when convicted? No, well, of course, they absolutely do. But that's not the question that really I'm addressing. What I'm yeah. addressing is police officers get accused of things that they didn't do okay. more frequently than, than, than what they did do. And, um, and so one of the odd things that I've come across in the last 20, 30 years and I've spoken occasionally about is that the minute you become a police officer, the minute, the very second, is the very second that the whole job is trying to take your position away from you. And it's a very odd position to be in. So, for example, if you're a mechanic at a shop and you're, you have value, you know, you walk into a shop and you're there six months after six months, you, you're humming and you're, you're working and you're, you're making money for the company. You're making money for yourself. You're getting accolades. You're getting raises. Well, when you go into the police academy, the minute you enter the police academy, within six months when you graduate the academy, they're looking for a reason to take your job. If that makes sense to you. Like, did you screw this up? Did you screw that up? Mm. Did you do this wrong? Did you do that wrong? Whereas in, in, in society, in, in the commercial industry, they're looking to raise your level up. It's very, do you get what I'm saying? I get what you're saying, yeah. It's always someone's looking to impugn you, to attack you, you're wrong, you're wrong. I mean, it's it's really, and that's the stress of being a police officer. But And I, I'm like, I say to myself, why the fuck? Do we curse on this show? I don't know. <laughs> why the fuck have a job that the whole time you're in the job, they're trying to take it from you? It's so oxymoronic, if that makes sense. It does. And I mean, when 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 you started, was it what you thought right at the beginning? So when I started, yes, it was in the beginning what I thought it would be because I was in the police academy and everything's altruistic. You know, it's all the way it's supposed to be. Um, you know, they're happy to have you there, even though they're a little tough on you because they want to drill certain things into you. You know, it's a congenial, it's 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 rah-rah. And then when you hit the street, it's totally opposite. So like, it's like total opposite. And can you walk me through a day in the life as a New York City police officer? Well, I can, I could probably tell you, I could start how I would start my day. So I would show up at work at, uh, so roll calls at seven, let's say roll calls at seven o'clock. I think it's 7.05. I can't remember. things. <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, you know, so if, if it roll calls at 7.05, I'd stroll in about five to seven, you know, and then be dressed in time to, and, and squared away in time to show up for roll call on time, do a roll call, get assigned your, your sector or, or your foot post. And you would uh, head out the door onto freedom. Okay. So, so the minute you left the police uh, quarters or the, or the, or the precinct, like seven, five, let's say, the minute you walked out of the door of the seven, five, you basically you're on your own, you and your partner. So it was fun in that respect, right? Because you would leave, you would leave the confines of the structure of the police department, right? The building and everything. And you would enter a, a patrol car and the street's your own now, right? You run the street. You are the police. You run what goes on out there. And 
So, you know, you'd start your day, you know, you'd go get, you'd go get a coffee or something or uh, a bagel or whatever, some cream cheese if you like. And, and, and uh, you'd post up somewhere a favorite spot uh, that you might want to see um, th that's got a lot of activity going on or, <laughs> or, 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 or just maybe even, um, you know, when the ladies are walking by, you know, I mean, but when you're in the ghetto, it's not that many good, good spots. I will be honest with you, but you find a spot, you find a, a favorite spot and you'll go there. So it, did you work mainly in the ghettos? Main, mainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, at some point I ended up in, uh, in Gre Greenpoint slash, um, Bushwick area, which was 50, 50 was some areas were very, very nice. And other areas when it was somewhat dingy, but, but even the dingy in there were, were, like heaven compared to the ghetto, but so yeah. Um, and can you tell me about the seven five precincts? So it's hard to tell you about something that you actually lived because it becomes you, right? So um, it's like, can you tell me about your home life? So you know, I woke up and then I had. But you know, it was considered as one of the toughest precincts it, because yes. of the area it was in, right? Right. Well, because it was a high crime precinct. Um, shootings, robberies, murders, and rapes went on all day. Like every day, if not every other day, there was constant activity, I would say. And so, for example, you probably had 30,000 robberies in the 7-5 precinct in one year. Yeah, so it's a lot of robberies, right? And uh, so that means in the course of a day, you and your partner are probably handling three or four armed robbery calls um, and that's how busy it was. And I say um, armed robbery call is a very heavy job to respond to besides your typical family dispute, your um, aided case where someone's fell down and broke an arm or leg or um, a typical uh, fight between brothers uh, or, or, or um, an establishment owner calling you saying that someone refused to pay. You know, you could be... The day never was boring, and generally it was generally in any in the course of any day you responded to a shooting, which required work. And I mean by work, I mean it, investigative work, a time on scene, securing a location, taking an individual to a hospital if they were um, if they were in the condition that would require um, immediate saving of life, or if they would usually. Oftentimes, too far gone, you wouldn't transport somebody that was too far gone. You would just have an ambulance, you know, either declare them dead or put them in an ambulance and take them to the hospital where they declared them dead or try to save their life, you know. And, and then many times that happened, surprisingly so. I mean, I went, remember one time uh, I, I got shot nine times and um, I was putting the 95 tag together, which 95 tag is um, um, the DOA. So, so it's DOA, we call it a DOA tag, you know, and, uh, I was filling out the DOA tag and, and I left it at the scene of the, um, hospital. As I went back to the precinct, I put a, I put an investigate DOA complaint report in. Cause that's how you, you would label the complaint report, investigate DOA and so on and so forth. It turned out that the guy lived and I, and I didn't know he lived. And, uh, so, uh, about a week and a half later, I see the woman that was the wife of the man that was shot. So I saw her in the precinct. She went to use the precinct for telephone as a payphone. Everybody comes to the precinct sometimes because it's safer, you know. Not really. Guys got shot in front of the precinct many times. But so she would come into the precinct and, and she used the phone to call somebody. So I saw her and I said, oh, oh, by the way, I'm really sorry about your loss. And she looks at me. She goes, what loss? I go, your husband. I know he, he died a couple of days ago, whatever, a week ago. And she goes, oh, no, he's outside there. He's outside there. <laughs> 
<laughs> He's outside on the other phone. There's a phone in front of the precinct and the one inside the precinct. I said, what? She goes, yeah, he's outside over there. So, I mean, this guy was as white as, as a sheet. It's a, a white sheet. I mean, they're dead. You're dead. When you're white looking sheet, you're dead. Believe me, I've been there many times. Not me personally. Like, but uh, so I said, what? She goes, yeah. I said, here's a guy who gets shot nine times. And survived. And he's alive. Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm angry. Not at him for his living, but like, I know I get shot in the elbow and I'll fucking die. You know, this guy's <laughs> shot nine times. I'm talking about kill shots. He's fine. He's out there right now. A week and a half later, he's outside the precinct walking around. That's I mean, insane. I mean, this is the way life was in the ghetto. It was just insane. And at this point, how much were you making as a police officer? So when I started out as a police officer in, in, in Queens, and I, and I moved over to the 7-5 precinct in Brooklyn. And so it, I didn't start out making a dime. You know, what, what happened was eventually um, I came across a – I actually – the moment I actually, never mind that car scene, right? But the where I, I, I made the guy give me some money for lunch, a lobster lunch, I said. <laughs> Make sure it was a... I'm talking about before you went corrupt. Right. I'm talking about how oh, much oh, is like oh, a... Oh, how much does a police officer make? How much does an officer okay. make? So at that time, I was clearing about 300, in, in now, not in the academy, but at that time now, so when, I, when, I, when I'm in the 7-5 as an active patrolman, I was making about $305 a, a week clear. Jeez. Yeah, so it was a little. I mean, it's the '80s, so I mean, it's it's not it was worth more. It, it, it's you can times it by two and a half probably right now, right? But so that was about what I was making, and um, it's still not enough money, right? But it never is, and, and and no money is ever enough. So there's and there's no justification for anything you do. But the fact is that money was scarce. Yeah. So, and how did you go from being? just a normal police officer to a corrupt police officer. So that's the, that's the, the trick that I sometimes wonder, how the hell did this happen? Because <laughs> I, I was inherently a good person, and I still think that I am, although some actions and things that I have done may indicate otherwise. But I think to my core, I'm a, a decent human being. And so what I what I did was I, I, um, I began to justify why I could do this. And I, I said to myself, I'm not taking money from good people, right? So, because that's the last thing anybody wants to do and, and be known for and, and to live through, you know, to live through their soul. I do have a soul, I guess, you know, and people may say I don't, but I do. And and my soul, I didn't want to hurt good people. Is that If that makes sense, I hope your audience would understand that. Believe I, me, my audience uh, is used to seeing gangsters, <laughs> killers. They've seen right, it all. Right. So the fact is that I choose chose to take advantage of the people that were taking advantage of it, of people. So you're taking advantage of people and you're, and you're corrupting a system by distributing narcotics, you know, and or, you know, and or any uh, organized crime type of uh, activity. I would never have, I, don't, I wouldn't feel any impingement of guilt upon my soul if I took something from you. If you rob a robber, are you a robber? Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, that's, technically you are, but is, is Robin Hood a bad guy, you know? He took from the rich and gave to the poor. But who did you give it to? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I gave it to some poor, me, I was poor. <laughs> Son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, but yeah, but I took care of people along the yeah, way. Yeah, you know, yeah. I wasn't a one-way motherfucker. Let me tell you right now. You know, I took care of people. You know, I had a lot yeah. of people. I let a hanger on us, okay? You know, and, and so yeah. So, but the fact is that uh, I took from the I took from the people that were that were taken from you and me. So, can you tell me about the first time that you played outside of the law? Well, I'm not going to tell you about the first time because that's boring. 
because it was about the lobster lunch with the kid with the automobile. But I'll tell you about the next time. And that was a little exciting for me because that was, um, actually that was the second or third time. I can't remember now because one time was a, was a homicide where, uh, where the guy had, um, so I can tell you about the homicide. That was, that was an interesting one because it was, um, it was on Sutter Avenue, uh, right by Vermont, uh, street. There was a bodega. Uh, was it? No, Bradford. It was on Vermont and Bradford, I believe. And it was, um, it was a bodega and I forget the owner's name, but I loved him. He was a great man. So neck right behind the bodega, but on Sutter. So the bodega faced the street. I want to say Bradford, uh, the bodega faced Bradford, but it probably had a Sutter Avenue address. And behind the building, so on Sutter, uh, was a um, an attached, let's call it a smoke shop. But it was it's basically, a, they, back in the day, they were, called, they were candy stores. There was no candy in the store. There was just marijuana. And uh, like, like there is today, right? Legal marijuana pretty much in many places. Even if it's not legal, they're still selling it which is very odd. But anyway, um, I wish I had a shop, but uh, <laughs> a lot of money in it now. So there would be a, 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 so this shop was known for selling marijuana, tray bags. They call it the tray bag. I don't know if you're familiar with the terms. Uh, it was a tray bag. Tray bag is a $3 bag of marijuana. And uh, so this guy would sell hundreds of tray bags a day. And then, uh, so we get a call to that tray bag spot and um, man shot. And usually when you get a call to a location, you know, like you can tell by the call, the specific specificity of the call, if there was probably something going down. So I was pretty sure I was showing up on the scene where someone was shot. So when we arrived to this location, oddly enough, we could get in because that's not always the case. So someone allowed the front door to be open. And then there's a, a back door front, a back front door. So as you would walk in the vestibule, there's another door to go into the service area of this candy store. I couldn't open the door. But when I, so when I opened it, 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 it was not closed, locked. It was like, it would partially open. Well, the reason I couldn't open it was because the guy's head was holding the door closed. The guy on the floor. Dead. Dead. Yeah. So, and, and so eventually we were able to push the door open, slide the guy's head back. And I was able to enter the location, my partner and myself. And there was a guy over the body at this point. When he saw us come in, he ran over and jumped over to the body and began to work on the friend, whoever he was in the store. And um, he was shot in the head and one bullet. And um, I'm looking around and saying, this just doesn't make sense. Because usually the door would be open from the front and it wouldn't, the guy's body wouldn't be against the door this way. So that to me meant that someone from the back of the building shot the guy. I mean, doing a little investigative uh, discovery immediately. I'm like, this doesn't seem, it seems odd. So anyway, but the guy was quite concerned, the owner of the establishment of the tray bag spot. And one of the utterances he said is like, oh, I told him, I told him to stop fucking with these guys' women. Okay. That was a little odd. I mean, he's your buddy's dead, you know, on the floor. And you're telling me, you, know, you told him not to do this. Okay. In the meantime, to my right was a pile of marijuana, sizable amount, which had already been mostly removed, by the way. Yet there was still three or four pounds of marijuana there. And which I didn't know that most of it was removed, but later we would mm -hmm. find out. And next to that, there was a pile of cash. Not a lot of cash, but probably I would say in the neighborhood of six, seven grand. But there was a small stack of hundreds, which I ended up putting in my pocket. 
So what happens is in comes the sergeant, who's a nice guy, friend of mine, sort of. We get along quite well. He was an older gentleman. To me, I was 22, okay, maybe 23. So then the sergeant was probably 43. So he's had 20 years already on the job. And uh, he goes, this is it? This is all you got here? Like a couple pounds apart and, uh, and three, four grand, whatever it was in cash. I don't know, remember exact numbers at this point. And I, I, felt, like, I felt like he knew that I stole money. So I, so I went in my back pocket and took out the five or $600 that was there. And I go, oh, I said, well, I, I also this. <laughs> my, my guilt immediately, I said, also this, I separated me. They didn't want it to get stolen by anybody else like me, right? So. I was just keeping it safe. Yeah, I was keeping it safe. <laughs> so he looks at me and shakes his head. And um, so that night, after we handled the homicide and all the investigative work, and we broke the case immediately, it was the kid. The kid shot his pal, uh, killed him. Uh, he, got, he got five years, by the way. So he did three. Yeah, nice, not nice system, right? He got five years for killing his friend, uh, executing his friend. Um, not life like you're supposed to, but he executed his friend. He got three years. Um, so that night, when I was out with the with the boss in in, in, in a bar on Long Island, um, I, I used to remember the name. I can't remember anymore. It was. Um, I, I said to him, I said, "Sorry, let me ask you a question." He says, "Why?" Well, I said, "What if I kept that money?" He says, as far as I'm concerned, if you get it before I get there, it's yours. So he kept it. No, no, no. He didn't say he kept it. I don't know what he did with it. <laughs> In fact, I didn't think of that, but he may have kept it. But what he said to me was, if if you come on as a homicide scene and there's money there, it's yours. He said, but make sure I get some. <laughs> That's what, that was his words to me. So from that moment forward, it was like I got the permission. To, if I come across some errant cash laying around, especially at a homicide scene, because they generally don't set you up by killing somebody. <laughs> like that's usually not the way the police department's going to set you up. Okay, mm -hmm. generally, I don't know that they today they may do those types of things or stage a shooting. I don't fucking know. But so at that moment uh, forward, I knew that to look for opportunities to enrich myself, and 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 that wasn't like my goal, but it eventually became my goal. How many people in? your precinct were corrupt? Because it sounds like, I mean, the boss was corrupt. It sounds like. So, yeah, I would suggest that he had a corrupt bent to him. He wouldn't be adverse to you. Uh, so don't forget, the boss was on the job 20-something years, right? So at the that point in his career, he had gone through what they had called the cleaning of the Knapp Commission, which if you're familiar with New York City Police Department history, the Knapp Commission uh, was done or, or, or initiated to eliminate corruption at all levels of the police department. And uh, it wasn't that successful, by the way. It seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't that successful. <laughs> but what it did was it changed corruption in the New York City Police Department because Corruption in New York City Police Department, as in many departments, don't don't just don't just think it's New York City. It, it, it was endemic throughout. This is everywhere. I, yeah. I come from South Africa, yeah. right? Yeah. So I know all about corruption. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's a very common it, thing all around Africa uh, as well. Right. All over the world, there's some levels. There's of some levels, right? So when when the New York City Police Department was going through the NAT Commission uh, cleansing, back then the corruption went from basically the top down, okay? So what happened now in, in, after the NAP Commission, the corruption went just to the street and it didn't go up because the bosses became insulated. 
because they didn't, they were paid more handsomely than the patrolmen, right? And the patrolmen were the doers anyway. All the corrupt activity that took place for the most part happens at street level. Now, the deep corruption where you're involved in white collar bookings and, 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 and stocks and all that shit, that's a different ball game. That's for the feds anyway. They're all corrupt. But, um, but <laughs> well, I hate them. <laughs> but well, I hate them with the passion. And they know it, by the way. They fucking shadow ban me everywhere. And they do, by the way. Um, but the thing is, corruption has to happen where people interact, right? Otherwise, there's no corruption. If people don't interact, there's nothing to corrupt. So years ago, the policeman, the patrolman was doing the corrupt acts for the boss. At this point, when the bosses and the whole system gets exposed, the guys at the bottom, they're the ones who paid anyway with their dear lives, right? Because they're the ones who did the corrupt acts while they were paying up. So it, when the when the when the NAP commission ends uh, and 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 lays out the corruption in New York City, the patrolmen all got fucking hurt for taking care of their higher ups. So now the patrolman says, "I'm the the way of the patrolman became it's about me, not about you. It's about what I can get." And you're just sick of risking your life to, to pay the boss up, higher up, correct? And then you're the one taking taking the, the shit, right? And right. You got it. Yeah, you you could draw the map from there. Okay, so then <laughs> so then when when you you interact in an, in a manner that can lead to corruption, you 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 make a choice of not to be corrupt, which would be nice. Or if you do make the choice to be corrupt, it's between you and that individual or your partner, mm -hmm. not up. And that's how um, that's how corruption continued after the commission. And and I came across it as a young patrolman. When I was in Queens, I, I witnessed things. I'm saying, well, that wasn't right. I didn't know what I was witnessing, but I knew it wasn't right. And then as I became a seasoned police officer, I began to see where it was happening. And one time in particular I talk about was when I made a car stop in another guy's sector. And uh, I, he pulls me over while I'm, while I'm issuing a summons to a um motor vehicle operator for doing something. They went, they blew a stop sign, which is no big deal. But, and I probably, probably wasn't even going to give the guy a summons, but as I'm looking through his paperwork, the guys pull, they pull a patrol pull, pulls up behind me and fucking does a car stop on me while I'm doing the paperwork for a summons with the other guy. He's like, what are you doing? Well, we're writing a summons. What do you, well, that's not what I'm asking you. What are you doing here? Oh, I don't, I don't, just, I'm a police officer from the 75 precinct. I mean, I just pulled a car over. Yeah, but you're in my sector. You don't pull clothes over in my sector. I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, this is the ghetto, bro. There's nothing here. <laughs> it's nothing here but but crime. You know, and three spots to eat in, in a five square mile area. And he's he, and it's like, you st stay out of our sector. Don't come back in our sector again. You, you understand? Like at gunpoint, this guy's talking to me again. I'm like, Are you Off the car. Yeah, yeah, the patrolman, this patrolman behind me, I'm, I'm giving you this look because he's standing like he's doing a car stop on me. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here in a patrol car with my partner, and here's a guy off the side of the window with his gun in his fucking hand talking to me about uh, don't pull cars over in my, my, my sector again. I'm like, I'm like looking back. Is this fucking guy for me? I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to absorb what's going on here. This motherfucker's pulling me over. He's doing a car stop on me, telling me don't stop patrol. 
uh, don't stop vehicles in my sector again. Stay out of it. And don't go to any of my uh, spots to eat in my sector. There's like three, you know. <laughs> and he had most of them because he's in the north end, which was the better part of the precinct. So people would go there because it was the better section where you get something to eat. Don't come here to eat in my sector and all this. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. And this guy's got a fucking contract here or something. So I put it together, two and two together. There must be something going on up here, or there must be some reason that a guy doesn't want you in his sector. And we, I understand the, the, the territorialness of this is my sector, this is what I do. But to say don't pull a car over, don't give out any summonses, you know, don't eat in many of my spots up here. Like I began to see the job in a different light. Because like I had said, when I was in Queens, I saw things, but I didn't understand them. And now when I was in Brooklyn and I saw something similar, it began to make sense to me. Well, from what I got from the documentary, I think one of the things someone said was the ghetto is a gold mine. Yeah. Forget Beverly Hills. Yeah. Because in the ghettos, there's a lot of, you know, drug dealing and nefarious acts going on. Yes. And Chicky, if, Chicky said that. If yeah. you are corrupt right. with someone from someone doing illegal things, they can't do anything. Right. If you try and pull the same thing in a more privileged uh, area, right. you're going down for it. Normally, yes, because they're usually padded up and protected quite well. If they're doing something corrupt in a privileged area, there's a reason they're getting away with it, right? But in the ghetto, everybody's doing something crazy. And I don't mean everybody because that's a blanket yeah, statement. Not everyone. Not yeah. everybody. But there's a large percentage of people that are flagrantly violating the law. And what are they going to do? Call the police? When, are they going to call the police on you mm. when you're when you're robbing them or shaking them down? You would call it a shakedown. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, we don't use the term robbing a drug dealer. Did, did we shook you, them down. Did you ever feel guilty in a way for targeting people in the ghetto? Because a lot of them obviously are doing illegal things, but because of their circumstances, it's kind of led them into that lifestyle. So, so that's a good question. And um, First of all, there is no circumstance that leads you into anything, right? You make that decision yourself. So just like I did, I made my own decisions. They make their own decisions because there's plenty of people that have left the ghetto and yeah. have done quite well. So, so I, I make that statement because a lot of people use that as an excuse. I'm from the ghetto. That's why, I, well, you know, you know, uh, Thurgood Marshall was from the ghetto and he became a Supreme Court justice. So, so you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but the fact is that the opportunities in the ghetto can seem less apparent and lead people to a life of crime more easily because the examples that are there, I mean, I just watched the movie, uh, Lucas. I don't know if you saw the, uh, mm -hmm. Frank Lucas. Frank Lucas was probably the biggest heroin dealer in the history of New York City, if not the country. And uh, and he actually dealt his heroin to the mob. So that's that's how that's how big... He was, and but he was looked up to as a role model in Harlem and uh, quite highly acclaimed guy. He was no, he wasn't a guy that they able to, they didn't look at him disparagingly. They looked at him with honor and dignity. And meanwhile, he was poisoning, you know, half, half the ghetto and 20% of the rest of the country with his heroin. And, 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 but when I watched the movie, I, I admired his character in the movie because the way he handled things. And, of course, it was all bad, right? The guy's a major heroin dealer. But he had some dignity about him. He had some some um, some redeeming qualities about him. You know, like most people, uh, and I even say this, 
you can either run a drug organization or run a Fortune 500 company. It's basically similar in, in a lot of ways. Well, it's the same thing as what happened with Pablo Escobar. You know, he was loved in Colombia. Loved, yes. Because he gave so much to charity. But I think a lot of people didn't take the time to go, where is this money coming from? Or they just didn't care. They didn't care, right. But I want to know, there was a story in the documentary where you were called because the lady was getting beaten by her partner. Right. Uh, he was a Rastafarian guy. Do you remember oh, that yeah, story? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell us that story? So uh, the woman actually, um, she was at the precinct. And my partner and I that day, Chicky happened to be my partner that day, which was not common. Chicky and I were in the same squad for a year and a half or two years together, but not in the car together. Chicky had a partner and I had one. And my partner was out that day and Chicky's partner was out that day. So we teamed up. And which was a marriage made in heaven. We, we were best friends, you know. And unfortunately today we don't speak. But anyway, so, and I don't know why. Because um, I speak to everybody else uh, except Kenny. Uh, so um, we we put we put the girl in the car and we take her to her home on New Jersey Avenue. I think the address was 422 New Jersey or it could have been 522. It was right off of Blake Avenue. Right on the right, headed south on the right-hand side of New Jersey. I could, I could take you to the house if you want to see it. Um, so when we arrived, she got out of the vehicle with us and we went up to the door. And so we followed her in because her husband was there and there was... She just wanted to get some things and leave. So we, we, we were escorting her to do so, to keep any tensions and problems between the couple happening. And uh, when she opens the door, he comes to the door. And he doesn't realize that he's opening the door to us as well. And he, he looks behind her. She looks at us. He looks at us. And he, he turns white. And this guy was as black as an ace of spade. And he turns white. And all the blood left his face. And she looks and she goes to close the door on us. Now, here's the woman who asked us to protect her from her husband. And she goes to shut the door on us because she knew something wasn't right right now, right? Timing was way, it was not good. So, of course, you know, the bells went off in my head. Uh-oh, we got something good here. So I breach the door, throw her out of the way. And he's trying to close the second door because there's a vestibule and then inside the vestibule. He's trying to close the second door, which he had no chance when I, when I, when I got going. You know, I was probably 210 pounds. He was about a buck 45. Anyway, he's trying to hold the door closed and he wasn't happy. I was getting in. I don't matter what I was getting in. So then when I breached the door from him, I grabbed him by his dreads and I, and I, I, it was so quick. I grab him by his dreads and I drag him to the to the end of the hallway and to the right it opens up into a into the living room, kitchen, dining room. And um <laughs> I looked to, I got him in the hallway, I looked to the right, and Chicky comes into the right and, and he sees this big, huge bag of, of marijuana. I mean, it was fucking it was a gar garbage pail. It was fucking it was bigger than a garbage pail. It was like a 55-gallon drum. And um so we're like, what the fuck do we have here? So now I take, his name is Robbie Smith. Now I take Robbie Smith by his dreads. I drag him into the living room. I got to keep him, I got to contain this guy. I don't know what he's, what's going to go on with him. So I drag him by his dreads into the living room. And now back in the 80s, people had mirrored walls. Like they were little one foot by one foot mirrors plated on the wall. So I put him in front of the wall, not realizing that he's looking in the mirror to look at us, to get a look at our faces, see who we are. And... He's seeing what we're doing. So we're shaking the place down. Chicky comes, reach, this is the funniest part of the whole thing. Chicky comes out with the bag, a, a big, um, there's a bag of marijuana here this big. 
can't even, you can't do nothing, but it's too much. It's too much fucking marijuana. The bag's too big. I can't, I can't walk out the house with that bag. It's just too big. Excuse me, I'm taking your marijuana. Then what? Someone's going to say, what happened to the marijuana, right? So, but Chicky has his duffel bag. It's a good sized duffel bag. He takes the duffel bag, puts it up on the couch, takes out two guns, uh, two nine millimeters. He takes out two guns. He goes, oh, look at these guns here. He takes the guns, puts them in his fucking pants. He takes the bag with... I go, what's in the bag? He goes, cash. He takes the cash. He takes the bag, zips the bag back up and puts it under the couch. I said, the fuck are you doing? <laughs> he goes, he goes, I got the guns. I said, fuck the guns. There's cash in that bag. You get the bag out of here. What are you crazy? And Robbie Smith's on the fucking floor looking at me like you motherfuckers are taking my cash. I'm like, shut the fuck up, you. You're lucky. And I, it's two guns. There's bags of marijuana, big bear like this and a bag with cash in it. So, uh, we took about 10 grand, whatever it was. And it, but we didn't take all the cash. You left them some. We left them some cash. <laughs> so so I, I find out how much cash was in the bag. Now, seven months later, I get called back to the house. Seven months later. For an aided case, uh, uh, the young girl was sick in the home. I get called back to the house, and the woman comes to the door when the ambulance comes and the police come with the ambulance and sees me. And she starts screaming out, you robbed me, motherfucker, you robbed me. Now, here I am. I took her back to the house, got her back in. And Robbie Smith, what happened was I told Robbie Smith he had to give me 4000 a month. He fucking left. Motherfucker, he left the country. Like, he just left. There was the foreign guy. Yeah. Rather than come back and give me four grand a month, he left. Are you serious? Bro, we got a deal here. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, how stupid is he? He had a fucking car plunge for, for marijuana. So you wanted him to pay you yeah. four grand every month. Yeah. The fuck? <laughs> what? That's a deal. I mean, you get to sell your fucking marijuana, or you pay me four grand a month. He fucking bolted. He wouldn't stay. So I get called back to the house seven months later on an aided case, and um, the woman starts screaming. And, and two other cop, two other cop cars happen to be there. How the fuck are they there for? I don't know why they're there. And so there's six cops there, two and two, right? Two and two and two. It's four, six cops there. And she's yelling out, he robbed me, this motherfucking bad policeman. The devil, you know, the white devil, whatever they were calling me, shit. So she's telling this cop, he robbed me for $24,000. So I said, she's fucking lying. It was only eight. <laughs> it was only eight, nine thousand. Well, no fucking, I gave him the money. So he told his wife, this motherfucker told his wife that the cops took his money. All of it. So now he used us against his wife by saying, you brought the cops here and they took all my money, 24000 The motherfucker, I only took 8000 So he's a liar. Not only is he a thief and criminal, he's a liar. <laughs> and then there was another story where there was a kid that you chased home. And when you got to his house, there was scales everywhere and cocaine you know yeah, the story? yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ, you know more than me. <laughs> Can you tell me about that? That that was um. So it was Noriega's cocaine. Noriega uh, was Noriega, the the head of uh, um. He's the head of Panama. He was the president of Panama. Okay. So, <clears throat> just for a little history, Noriega became the funnel for uh, George Bush's cocaine uh, missions when the CIA was trying to help uh, El, El Salvador. It was a big, it's a big uh, thing that went on. So all the cocaine came through Panama. It was set up that way. And then the cocaine would be distributed in, in America. And the money that came back in went to fund the CIA undercover operation. This is what they did. Anyway, I don't know the, all the details because I wasn't involved in the details, but so, so the president of, uh, of uh, Panama 
Manuel Noriega was a main conduit for cocaine into America. So this day, uh, um, we get a call. Kid, kid does a robbery in the street for a Kango hat. You know, back in the day, there was Kango hats. I don't know if you know what a Kango hat is. No okay. idea. Kango hats were big, okay? Just like Jordan sneakers are big and, you know, the gold chains were big, mm. Kango hats were big. So this young Panamanian kid, I didn't know he was Panamanian at the time, uh, robs a, a local street kid for his, his Kango hat. <laughs> you would think, I mean, oh Christ, they're robbing a guy for a fucking hat. Anyway... So he runs into his home and uh, he was slick. He was a slick motherfucker kid. He was slick. And uh, we knock on the door and he wouldn't let us in. I mean, I don't blame him. He didn't let the police in. But this downstairs neighbor, so it was a multifamily dwelling and there was a common entry, but the downstairs neighbor let us in. So once today let us in, he, go, he ran upstairs, closed the door on us. Of course, we barged our way in, opened the fucking door. And I, when I got in the apartment upstairs, we couldn't find anything, but I saw a lot of money was spent in this apartment, like too much. This is a ghetto apartment. There's just too much, too much money, too much cash. There's, when you see excess shoeboxes and fine furnishings in a ghetto apartment, because most people in a ghetto apartment are not there long term. And, and if they are, they're poor. And being poor doesn't lend to $25,000 in furnishings in a, in a small apartment or 35 boxes of shoes up against a wall because there's no room to store them in your closet. So money's being spent here. So I knew right away something wasn't normal. We ended up going downstairs in the basement. And then when we opened the basement, there's triple beam scales and, uh, and canisters of, uh, I think it's called, I forget the name of it, minacetol, the cut, the cut that they use for cocaine. So I said, well, if there's cut, and there's scales. There's got to be cocaine here somewhere. So sure enough, typical ghetto apartment, the curtains, they use curtains to separate rooms and close closets in, okay? So this closet had a curtain on it. It's a closet. Make believe it's a door because it's not, but it looks like a door. It acts like a door. So push the curtain aside. And in, inside the closet was briefcases, big, hard, leather-bound, wooden plywooded, I didn't know they were plywooded at the time, plywooded, inch-thick plywood briefcases. They were big, solid, sturdy cases. So I pick up this suitcase. I'm like, this is fucking heavy. And not only was it heavy, it was, you know, like, and then I shook it, and I could feel something. I'm, I'm like, man, it must be a whole pile of cash. I don't know what's in there. So we couldn't open the suitcase. It was locked. I'm trying to pry. I can't get nothing to open. He said, this is really well-made. You're going to open You're not opening this briefcase. So my partner finds a hacksaw. So he gives me a hacksaw. So I start hacksawing this fucking briefcase. And it's, I mean, I'm at this in three, four minutes just trying to cut through the top layer of this briefcase. Finally, I, I'm able to separate the plywood and up comes this plume of cocaine out of the fucking, out of the fucking suitcase. I'm like, fuck, we got cocaine. Now I got to get in. Now you really got to get in. I start pulling out like half pound, quarter pound bags of cocaine out of this briefcase and uh, start stuffing it in every hole and orifice we could find in our clothes and stuff. And so we left with the cocaine. And it was hard to take it out because, you know, there's cops everywhere. <laughs> you, can't, you can't rob cocaine with cops standing around unless they're with you, you know? And we didn't know, because it's an armed robbery call. An armed robbery call, you're going to get six, eight patrol cars to show up. 
because it's a dangerous situation. And it was dangerous to rob the place with cops all around. So it was, it was hard to, to, otherwise I would have walked up with three briefcases uh, and full of cocaine. So I, I couldn't get away with the coke. So I ended up stuffing it in my clothes. And uh, turns out it was pure Peruvian fucking pink shale flake, which is like the best in the world. And so now we're going back to get the rest of it. About a half an hour later, we're going back to get the rest of it. And when we got back there, there was a fucking limousine outside. Black limousine, four guys standing outside the limousine with their trench coats on and machine guns under their trench coat. So I thought better. <laughs> so you decided to go around the block? I, I thought better. I thought better for my own safety. I just leave well enough alone. And I just fucking, my, my partner and I just left the scene. And during this time, there was another precinct that was caught up in a scandal, the 7-7 precinct. Correct. Can you briefly tell me about that? So the 7-7 is two precincts away, okay? So it's probably about four miles to the 7-7 precinct from the 7-5. And what had happened was they were basically shaking down street dealers and uh, busting into drug drug dens and taking this stuff and, and then reselling it like everybody was doing back in the days. <laughs> it was quite common. Anyway, and um, so 13 cops get arrested and uh, a big shit hits the fan and the 7-5's next. So immediately we shut everything. You know, the guy's just, you know, shit's going down. We're not, you know, you're not going to be putting your hand in the cookie jar while stuff's happening. So everybody stood up, took a back seat and guys started leaving. Started leaving your precinct. Yeah, leaving. Just quitting. Quitting the job, going to different assignments, like looking for egress, a way to get away. And at the same time, uh, because I, I didn't leave yet, my, uh, my inspector asked me to put in a transfer. He said, I think you should get transferred. You should, you, you, you're burnt out. He's trying to help you. Yeah. Well, he's trying to help himself too. But yes, he's saying, look, you're burnt out. You need to get transferred out of here. So, I mean... How, how, you know, how naive is that to say? Because what he should have done is had me transferred. Because for me to request a transfer to your precinct, your commander in a, you know, the precinct, they're going to look at my jacket. Like, I don't want this fucking guy. He's under investigation by three different locations. You know, he doesn't come with this recommendation, this shining recommendation. So it, it, was, it was impossible for me to transfer. So what they did was they sent me to Coney Island for the summer. Which was nice, you know, Coney Island was by the beach, uh, you know, so, so it was sun, it was uh, baby oil, sun tanning, and uh, and Budweiser. It was my whole uh, summer at, at summer detail at Coney Island. So, so yeah, so uh, so the seven seven breaks out. The guys in the seven five all get scared. They all leave. I go to away to Coney Island. I come back from Coney Island eventually to the seven five, and no one would work with me. So you didn't have a partner. No. My partner went to Key West, which was as far south as you can go in this country without getting to going into Cuba. In fact, that's why he went to Key West. He said, if shit hits the fan, I'm, I'm going to Cuba. This is my partner. And who ended up becoming your partner? Kenny Urell. Who was, the guy whose name was Kenny. Kenny, yeah. Who, um, he was in the 8-8, he was in the 7-5 precinct. He got transferred to the 8-8 precinct because he, he uh, threatened to break a, a sergeant's neck. Something like that. Broke a guy's hand. Normal stuff. Normal stuff. <laughs> the sergeant, his boss, who yelled at him. His boss yelled at him. He said, don't yell at me. Hey, man. boss, don't <laughs> yell at me. You don't I yell at me. I can't do a Boston accent. <laughs> yeah. No, a New York accent. New yeah, York accent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, the boss yelled at him, so he uh, told him to go fuck himself and that if he ever raised his voice to him again, he would break his neck. 
And Kenny was the type of guy that could. And uh, so the boss got scared and had him transferred to to 88 precinct. So he so he was called a temporary assignment. So he was transferred to the 88 for a year, and after a year he could come back. So I never knew Kenny. Well, the shit was happening. And then when Kenny came back to the 75, while I was away on summer detail in Queen, in um, Brooklyn, in Coney Island, he came to the 75. I came back to the 75, and both of us, uh, he lost his partner. His partner went to become a sergeant, and I had no partner. So now he had no partner, and I had no partner. And eventually, we it took about almost a year for us to hook up together completely, to become partners. From what I could tell, he wasn't very fond of you. No, he had, um, he didn't want to work with me, but he didn't mind working with me, if that makes sense. I feel like from what I got, he liked you. Yes. But at the same time, he didn't want to get caught up in the things you were caught up in. Yes. More, more, more to the point, he was, uh, he thought that I was working for internal affairs. So he thought I was like the man. I was the rat. He didn't want to work with me because of that. Because why? Because all the people around me had left. And I was the only one still standing. So he wasn't corrupt, though, right? So when you started working with him, so Kenny, uh, in the documentary, they right. made him seem like he wasn't. So yes, so so to be fair, Kenny was probably can, what you would consider uh, a hard-nosed cop. Um, he wasn't overzealous, but he made a lot of arrests for domestic violence. And oddly enough, he had a little of his own domestic violence situations that he probably perpetrated. But that's a different story. But you know, I don't want to get into the into the weeds with it. But he was a little bit rough in his own home, to say the least. Um, maybe he saw it in his own home as well from his parents. I don't know because uh, I, I don't know if that's accurate to be honest. But but he was big on the domestic violence arrests because he liked the overtime. He was a big overtime monger, so he would uh, he probably was one of the top overtime earners in the precinct at the time that I met him. And I'm like, dude, you're spending your whole fucking time in central booking and making arrests. I, I, I made what you made in like three weeks. I mean, all the overtime you put together in a year, I made it in three weeks. So basically, and I cajoled him into... So you broke him down by saying, listen, yeah, no matter how hard you work, you're never going to make as much as I would it, it, doing it, what it, I do. Correct. And, and you're going to spend, you know... 80% of your life uh, at work where I'm spending eight and a half hours a day at work and then three hours a day partying and, and, and banging whores and <laughs> maybe, but no, most, <laughs> mostly, mostly not, but some occasionally, uh, but after the messages you <laughs> sent me, so <laughs> those are yours and mine. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I won't say anything. But, um, so, but, I mean, would you go out just to commit crimes or would you wait for the opportunity to present itself or would you go out actually seeking to do so that? there were different things so i would wait for the murders murders were great generally in the ghetto if you get murdered you get murdered over money or drugs generally now there's the odd one that who's mad at their husband or wife whatever but in the ghetto in the 80s if you got shot you were getting shot for a damn good reason so i would make sure i responded to shooting scenes which sometimes, actually, I got that too soon. <laughs> like, shit, this shit's still fucking happening. Oh, my God. When you finish shooting each other, come on. <laughs> One time, it was really fucking scary. There was still fucking gunpowder in the air and people running like in the in the house. It's like, I got them in the house. Would you run, please? We're here. <laughs> Hello? The police are here. Would you get the fuck out? <laughs> I mean, and, and it was a big, big major drug then, too. So, yeah. But, but, but you know, so, yeah. So, I would... I would wait for shootings, which were great. And then I would seek opportunities 
where uh, eventually you would find, and, and, you know, as we lead the story along, I would seek opportunities through a network of uh, intelligence, right? So I would know that you know drug dealers, he knows drug dealers, we know your drug dealers. This is what I want to get how to do, next, yeah. How do the, yeah. Who, who was Cello? So Actually, he, no, before Cello, can you tell me who Baron Perez was and so, the kind of relationship you had with so him? So Baron owned this Auto Sound City. Auto Sound City was a place where in the ghetto, people spent a lot of money on systems, radio, uh, um, music systems. And sound their, systems in their car. Sound yeah. systems in their car. Very expensive. And and it, it, they don't have them today. They don't make them like this today. But back then, they would they'd take your whole car apart and make it like a disco. It was like a fucking disco. You'd be driving down the block with a disco in your, your vehicle. And, I mean, they had 20-inch woofers and... I don't even know what they're called, you know, big speakers like this, like two or three of them sometimes in a car and the wall panels would have big woofers and speakers in them. It was, it was insane, but they were expensive. I mean, a good system back then was probably between 18 and $25,000. Yeah, the gooseneck equalizers, which you have no idea what that is. It looks like this. This is what a gooseneck equalizer looks like, except it was all lit up. It was really cool looking. Um, so they would have these kind of accoutrements that they would put in cars. And um, so no one had that kind of money to put in a, a $20,000 car. They put in a $25,000 system. So it was drug money. And it was pretty clear it was drug money. And and most of the, you could tell by most of the, uh, most of the guys that were dropping their, their car off, they didn't go to work that day. <laughs> they weren't working. They were just dropping their vehicle off to get it. Well, they took the other vehicle out for a spin, you know? Uh, and of course, the gold teeth and the and, and and the forty pounds of gold around the neck sort of gives you away. You know, you're sort of like advertising. I'm a drug dealer, and so Baron Perez had the shop, and that's where they all went to him. So going to Baron's shop was a conduit to all the local drug dealers, and I never really thought of having a relationship with the drug dealers in that respect. But Baron, being a smart businessman knew that if he was friends with me and or, or my liking, he could utilize that to make money. And trusting me, which he did, obviously, where he might not have trusted others in the same respect, he was able to, to turn my uniform into a money-making operation with offering protection to drug dealers. Go figure. And can you tell me who Cello was? So Cello was our first <clears throat> um, entrepreneurial adventure. And he ran a drug spot up on Norwood and Fulton, at least one. I, I'm certain he had several others. I just don't know them all offhand. I think he had, actually had one where the cop was killed. But anyway, uh, so he, he um, Baron had approached him and, about uh, being able to offer services through us. And he agreed to pay $8,000 for the week. Actually, I set the price for $8,000. I said, no, you got to give me $8,000 to do this. I don't know why. I just said $8,000, right? And um, so what happened was he wanted to know if the 4th of July weekend was a good weekend to just go ball to the wall and, and make sales and not be worried about undercover stings and stuff. So I just said, yeah, it's a great weekend for sales. <laughs> fuck do I know? I'm a patrolman. I'm not in narcotics investigations. And uh, 
sure enough, it went off pretty well. He had a great weekend. It went off pretty well. He had two minor arrests near his location for a couple of vials of crack, whatever, or, or small bags of cocaine, very minor, like 50s and 20s. But nothing massive. Nothing significant. So, and, and so I went on the assumption, which I could have been wrong, that uh, it's 4th of July weekend. These cops take these details, like narcotics or, or whatever the detail that they're in, so that they can have somewhat semi-normal life, right? So you, you hit it hard during the week, but come the holidays, you're with your family. So I went on that assumption. And Cello paid $8,000 for that assumption that I gave him. The problem with Cello was, when he paid us, whoever sent the money over shorted every stack of, see, when, they, when a drug dealer pays, they pay in thousands. So each stack of thousand had $100 missing from it. So someone was skimming it. Someone skimmed 100 off of each stack. Who? I don't know. Uh, but so that left us 8000 So it left, it left us $700 short. $800? No, but seven, though. Okay. It was only seven. But it would, you would have thought, I think one stack had, had 1000 in it. The other one didn't. The rest didn't. Maybe it's the first one, right? So I sent the message out that you can't, you can't short us. You can't, you can't do that. So he said, oh, yeah, okay. No, no, don't worry about it. I'll get you the money. And he never came with the money. And then he told us to go fuck ourselves. We're not getting the money. I said, oh, okay. So then I parked in front of his spot for a week. And then when I wasn't working, I paid another cop to, to park his patrol car in front of his spot. So after about four or five days of this, he called up Baron and said, I put a hit on this cop. So because you were harassing his guys. Everything. He couldn't you. sell. He couldn't sell a fucking, he couldn't sell a bag of water. <laughs> well, what were you doing to them? I was just pulling people over. Stopping at the store, getting out of the patrol car, walking around the store, saying hello to everybody, just let let them see us there. So then he put a hit on you. So he put a hit on me. Yeah. Now I didn't know this guy personally, but he, had, I, from what I understand, he killed twenty eight people. Killed he killed twenty eight people. I didn't know that. What the fuck did I know? <laughs> I didn't see him kill them. Right. So um, he put a hit on me, and I get the phone call from Baron. You got to come in. I go, what's up? He goes, I got to see you. So I went to a shop, and he said to me, uh, the guy put a hit on you. Now it's funny because. They actually knew about it in the precinct. They never told me the motherfuckers. They actually knew that. And they never told me because they hated me. <laughs> Believe it or not, they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> so, and I never met Cello. So you but, didn't know what he looked like? I didn't either. know what he looked like, but I knew his car. I, was, I saw his car one other time. It was like a funny looking Renault. You know, like they, 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 they dress them out. They dress some cars out and make them look more fancy than they were. She had all these, these bibs and shit and fenders and all flared out and stuff. So I knew that was his car. They make it look like a Mercedes. I don't know what the fuck they do. Anyway, so I saw the car. I pulled him over. And he didn't know it was me because he never met me. So I pulled him over. And um, license, registration, insurance card. So he, he takes out his license, registration, insurance card. <clears throat> and I'm looking for his glove box. And I'm praying he's got a gun in the glove box. And I want him to go for it. Just, I, I, I'm, that's just going through my head. So I say to him, I take his license registration and I don't fucking look at it. I don't give a fuck. I take it and I throw it back in his lap. I go, you gonna put a fucking hit on me, motherfucker? And he looks up and he goes, oh my God. And he turned to shit. The, the guy, the white the Rastafarian, he looked whiter than the, the fucking blood left his face and, He's like, oh, no. I says, if you put a fucking hit on the cop, motherfucker, why don't we just do it right here in the street? Let's go. I'll let you out. I'll be a man. I'll let you out of your car. 
I'll let you out of your car. I'm looking at the glove box the whole time, hoping he reaches for his fucking glove box and just kill him in the car. That's what I was going to do. I was going to kill him. Because I mean, if someone puts a hit on you... <laughs> you got to take it seriously. You got to take it seriously. It's not a joke, you know? So I tell him, I'll be bigger than you. I'm not going to put a hit on you. I'm going to tell you, get out of your car right now, and we'll do a fucking Mexican standoff. You walk 10 spaces that way, 10 spaces, I'll walk 10 that way, and we'll turn around and we'll see who wins the fucking gun battle. Let's do it right now. And I was like, just, I don't know why I said this. <laughs> I must have watched a lot of TV when I was a kid. I don't know. But that's, that, that was, I called him out on it right there. And he fucking looked at me. He just shook his head. No, no, no. I said, then you call the fucking hit off right now and you get it done. So I turned around. I left. About 15 minutes later, my, be my beeper goes off. Because uh, you know, back then we had beepers. You know? <laughs> you know what a beeper is? I mean, not even ever seen a beeper. It's like a little pager. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pager on your, uh, on your side. And, um, my people goes off. I go to Baron's shop. What's up? He goes, he took the head off. He called me. And he's just $700. <laughs> $700 was in his hand. And then when did you go from, when did you graduate from petty crimes right. to very serious crimes? I, if I'm not mistaken, it was with a guy called Adam Diaz. Yeah, so that was our prelude into seeing how this could work. Obviously, it didn't go off well because I'm threatened, getting hits put on me. I'm threatening to kill the guy who's supposed to pay me eight grand a week, right? So that thing dissolved. So I was done with that. And I was just looking for my typical shooting score, you know, just because I, what happened is the street becomes noisy. When you start shaking down the street, at some point it becomes noisy and you become a byproduct of it. Someone's going to say something. Even if they can't get you, you're going to become dirty and, and the noise about you. So I stayed away from street level stuff. But I would capitalize on shootings and things of that nature. So... Baron, undeterred by this um, hit on his patrolman and whatnot, found another organization that would pay handsomely and be more, um, would you, how would you say, refined. Because More reliable. Well, not, it's not much still reliability, but refined. Because I say that because Cello's, organi excuse me, Cello's organization was street dealing. Diaz's organization was supplying them. So can, can you tell me about his organization? Yeah, so what did he do and how did he do it? So Diaz's organization supplied street-level people. So, But when I say street-level, Diaz's organization wasn't handing the crack dealer stuff. He was handling the head of their operation stuff. So, for example, you have a spot like Cello had a spot. So Cello had a spot probably sold $100,000 a day in cocaine in that one spot, maybe more. Maybe some days, well, like the holiday weekends, a million dollars in sales. The guy would sell. It's a lot of money. But someone supplies him with that cocaine. That would be a, a, an Adam Diaz type. Okay, so because Adam Diaz would probably sell, on a typical week, 100 kilos. He would go through a typical week about 100 kilos. So he would get a shipment of 1,000 kilos that he would be entrusted with. So you're talking, this is big fucking numbers, you know? Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about in marijuana, not so much. Yes, right. But in cocaine, that's a lot. That's millions. That's millions, right? So he would get a shipment of 1,000, 1,500 kilos, and they would come from, you know, massive organizations like an Escobar organization or Ch uh, not Cello, uh, the, the uh, Cali cartel. So he had relationships with people that were brokers between Escobar and him.
and you can't get too many people in the middle of that. Otherwise, the numbers just keep going up too high. So, I mean, Diaz would probably pay at that time. He was probably paying, when I was working with him, between twelve and 15000 for a kilo. And a kilo back then, now, so kilos were used to be thirty five, forty thousand, And then during this period, they continued to go down in price because the flow was so huge. So by the time Diaz was flipping kilos... Uh, uh, in Brooklyn, when I met him, the prices were around twelve to thirteen thousand a kilo. So, in order for him to make money, he had to sell it at fourteen or fifteen thousand, or at least break it down and mm. sell ounces. Or, or basically, he wasn't. He was basically flipping kilos or half kilos. Most of his clients were buying that type of volume, two and three kilos. He probably had more two and three kilo buyers than he had half a kilo buyers. You know, so he would he would break it down to. Uh, what they would call big eight. I don't know if you know what a big eight is. It's probably an eight ball, but a big one. So there's an eight ball is three and a half grams, but a big eight is three and a half ounces. So he would probably go as low as that, but not often. Most of his clients were half kilo and up Mm -hmm. and, and and probably more, like I said, most of them were two and three kilos because I would watch them go in his store with boxes of money into his store. So you don't carry when you got a box of money, it's a, it's, it's a significant amount. They would go in with shoeboxes. They walked in with shoeboxes under their arm with the money in it. That's how, that's how, I mean, it doesn't say money on the side of the, of the Nike shoebox, but when you're going into a bodega with a shoebox, why are you bringing a fucking shoebox into a bodega? There's money in it. There's money in it. <laughs> and what, what was his character like? What kind of a person was he? Because he was, from the documentary, he was quite a funny guy. He's he was like, funny. When, you, when, you, when I looked at him, I thought of like typical mobster or gangster yeah. suave yeah oh he dressed funny voice he dressed well he uh he had a sense of humor um but he also had a very like like i guess if you if you if you picture john Gotti making someone laugh and then killing the guy next to him you know that's how adam could be you know he could be ruthless but if you were if you were so it's like anything else if you're friends with a guy you can do no wrong you know except embarrass somebody and that's anybody could do that and that would be wrong but um, he's, he's got a personality. He's funny and, uh, and very generous with when he, when he's, when he's got money, he's very generous right now. He's not doing this so well with money because he's, he spent a lot of time in prison. He more, he went to eight years. Then he went back for 13 more years. Oh my God. Yeah, he did. He did. And what did he want you to do for him? So <clears throat> he would pay me. So I, when I first met and linked up with Adam, I charged him $24,000, uh, just to speak to us. And he thought that was hilarious. Like, you wanted me to pay you $24,000 to talk to you? I said, yeah, otherwise, you know, we can't talk. I needed money, I wanted the cash. So he sent a bag of cash in for $24,000 in it. And then um, we sat down and had a discussion, a big meal, it was like a sit down meal. Uh, funny, because uh, Baron's wife prepared it and, and it, was like a, it was like a real formal meeting. And, uh, and he's so likable, I mean, <laughs> You know, to be successful in any business, you have to be likable. I mean, I would think you would agree with that. And most people that are successful in business, most people have some some redeeming qualities about them. And um, so, yeah, he was likable and fun. And uh, you could tell he had a, a, a little wild side to him. And I mean, he think he had like five girlfriends, for Christ's sakes. Uh, yeah, maybe more if he could remember them, you know, he forgot that one. Um but he was just so likable and fun to be around and, uh, you know, and he was easy with his money and generous and he, and he had beautiful cars and beautiful women. I mean, it was the eighties and it was just flashy and he, 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 he fit the pot. He fit the pot. Yeah. 
And what did he, he was a good looking kid too? I mean, you know, handsome, pretty almost, you know. And what did he want you to do for him? Yeah, so he wanted me to. So it, it really wasn't what he wanted me to do for him. It's what I was willing to do for him, which was um, so. I made a better deal with him than the other people that, that we had a little run in with. I wanted to offer him 24 hour, seven day a week coverage for whatever his operations were open, which was probably his. So the bodega hours. So his bodega hours was his hours of operation for his business because he owned bodegas. So I could only cover so much. I worked eight, eight, eight and a half hours a day. So I, I would be available to keep an eye on his shop while I was working. And then after work, I would have Chicky, who was no longer in the police department. He quit. I would have him cover the hours that I wasn't there. So I would put Chicky on, and I'd give Chicky $1,000 a week to cover when I wasn't working. And we would just, what we would do for him is surveil the neighborhood to look for undercover operations that may or may not be taking place because you have to set up an undercover operation. You don't set up an undercover operation 25 blocks away you have to be visually seeing what's going on at the location you're about to set up. So they'd have eyes on the ground near the operation, which is how I found the first potential. Actually, they went to raid the place and I found them getting set up to raid the place. And uh, So someone was going to raid um, Diaz's place. Correct. And you informed him that they were going to raid. Yeah, you're getting raided. So he had time to get rid of all his he got shit. Rid of, there wasn't a gram of salt in the place. <laughs> I think you said that exact same thing in the documentary. Sugar or salt, I don't fucking know. <laughs> and um, there, there was an incident where Diaz's drug house got robbed and his money was stolen by a guy called Franklin. Yeah. What did he ask you to do to this guy? Um, he wanted me to kill him, but I wouldn't do that. So, um, actually, that's not true. I would have killed Franklin, but I didn't, thankfully. Um because I would have, wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Um, but, I mean, but I only would have killed Franklin if he had been armed. So, um, but he wanted him dead. And um, so what I did do was I gave him Franklin's uh, information. I gave him, I, I, I wrote Franklin's summons. I pulled him over. And so you found him? I found him. It took me about two weeks to find him, but I found him. Because Franklin was very, um, he was wanted by every drug dealer in the neighborhood because he robbed everyone, a major guy. Every major guy, he robbed. Him and his him and his buddy, Coke. It was Franklin and Coke. They were a team. One guy's name was Franklin. The other guy's name was Coke. Go figure. I, I don't think he was born with the name Coke. But um, they would take out the places and hit him. They didn't give a fuck. You know, you talk about robbing, like even Adam says in the, in the documentary, he says, I had 13 men in the place. Eight of them, had, 10 of them had guns and this fucking guy beat them to it. One, one guy with a, with a willing to shoot gun uh, took the whole place down. So, so what happened when you found him? When I found Franklin? Yeah. Um, his wife was there. His wife? Was there, yeah. Saved his life. <laughs> but there was... Because Diaz said that you did report where he lived or something. Yeah. And then what happened after that? I don't know. Um, uh, well, I don't know what happened to him specifically, but he got shot nine times. He got hit with nine bullets in McDonald's up in the Bronx. Because Diaz did say, he said, the, the producer of the documentary was, was asking him, is he still around? Right. And he goes, all I'm going to say is, 
he's not around anymore. Right. Yeah, because he, he, it, we don't know who shot him, but he got shot nine times in the Bronx. Okay. So it could have been anyone. It could have been anyone. Because like I said, there's a, there was every drug organization in New York City was after Franklin and Coke. And at this point, roughly how much money were you making a month? Eight times four divided in half. So I was making 16, about 20,000 a month. That's pretty good. Pretty good. In the 80s, that's pretty damn good. So 20,000 a month times 12 is like, how much is that? Uh, 20 times 10 is 200,000, Right. I, I, I broke it down to I was making more than the president of the United States at the time. That's how I calculated my numbers in my head. President yeah, president yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, wow, okay, I'm making more than the president right now. I feel good. Not the president of Peru. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, we know what the president made on the books in the country. Right now, we don't know what Biden's making because his, his son's got more money hidden around the world. <laughs> so now that you were making a lot of money, what, what did you do with it? Because you don't seem like the kind of guy to just sit on it. Well, you know, I did sit on some of it, but I had, a Corvette broke out in the middle of it, brand new. You bought a Corvette. <laughs> yeah. 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 And a girlfriend that bought her a car and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of foolishness took place with the money, you know. And condo on the ocean. Yeah. Were you discreet with it? Or did you let people know that you had these things? Well, I did pull the Corvette into the precinct parking lot and took the lieutenant spot that was trying to go out with my girlfriend. So you, you took his parking spot and put your Corvette there. Yeah. Show him his boss. Yeah. Right in his ass. <laughs> and didn't you think people would get suspicious? I didn't give a fuck at that point. It was like, fuck you. You just thought you owned the place. I owned it. Yeah. And, and you know, he, so, so, he, so here's the truth. You know, I get a little cocky about it, but the reality is this. I was so tired of having to worry. At this point in my life, I was tired of worrying about what I was doing that I said, look, let's take a calculated, calculated risk. I'm going to put this fucking car in his spot. Right? Right in his spot. He's gonna gonna he's gonna shut his fuck it because you're trying to get my girlfriend the whole time. He's gonna he's gonna realize that ain't happening. And if they want me, they got good reason to come get me right now. And they didn't get me. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I just put the sticker, it was thirty eight thousand dollars on the window of the car. I made at that time twenty seven thousand dollars a year. At that time. From the police department. From the police department. My car was 38000 The sticker was on the window. I parked it in Lieutenant's spot. And um, Another thing you said was that you were making so much money that you forgot to pick up the checks. That happened. From the police department. That happened a few times. It wasn't like I forgot. I knew they were there. They you were just, safe. You weren't in a rush. <laughs> they were safe. I fucking need them. I mean, we can laugh about it. Of course, it's, it's stupid and foolish, right? But, you know, when I look back at it, I, I just... I just I'm 62 now. I look at say, look at that stupid 20-something-year-old kid did. What an asshole. I threw my life away. But, you know, we laugh and we, we cajole about it because it's actually, it's, it's a train wreck that we're watching back. We're looking back at a train wreck, right? So you're like, look at this stupid motherfucker. He's, he's throwing his life away. And everybody's looking at it like, when's it going to end, right? But think about it. You see a young police officer who's got four homes, a condo on the ocean, a brand new Corvette, a girlfriend, a wife, a bunch of kids. And you go, this guy, it doesn't work like that. How is this happening? And like, if I look back at that guy, I'm like, doesn't he see where this is going? I mean, but I'm sick. I'm a little bit, I got a little bit of experience now in life, right? But the funny thing is this, and this is how sick the world is in your head. I know 
that the people that are selling drugs got brand new Mercedes Benzes, gold chains around their neck and, and, and diamonds in their teeth. And I'm telling them, don't do that because you're bringing attention to yourself. And here I am, I pull a brand new Corvette and park it in the lieutenant spot. And of course, my rationale that I'm telling you, which was at the time, I wanted them to make a decision because all I kept hearing was, they're coming for you, Dowd. They're coming for you, Dowd. That was 1988. I don't get arrested till 92. When are you coming? Mm. <laughs> Can you get this over with? Because I can't stop me. You know what I'm saying? I can't stop me. This is, this is too good, but really it was torture, really, when you think about it. Sure, it was, it was exciting. There was a lot of money involved. There was a lot of things that normal police officers wouldn't have, but I was destroying myself, you know? What was your partner, Kenny, right? Right. What was his job in all of this? Just to say yes. And he was just along for the ride. That's all he fucking did. And when did you start doing armed robberies? Well, you'd have to say everything you did as a police officer, when you took money from somebody, you were doing an armed robbery. But there was a point where you were physically breaking. How do you know? How the fuck do you know this? I never told anybody this. I might have mentioned it once or twice in my whole life. We were, we were going after drug dealers off duty in... In our, off, in our home vehicles, yes, we were setting them up. How the fuck do you know? <laughs> what are you fucking talking to my, listening to my conversations? <laughs> we, we, were shit, we were going after them off duty. We were setting them up, yeah. We were breaking their homes, yeah. And would you ever hurt anyone? No. I mean, you know, a little roughed up if they need, <laughs> if they need be. But, you know, most people are pretty compliant with a gun in their face. <laughs> and we go in as police officers, so it's like they think they're getting raided until they realize these motherfuckers ain't raiding us, they're robbing us. And what was going through your mind when you did that? We never get enough. There's never enough there. <laughs> it's never enough because it's always. So we would set people up that we knew would would would, would, would dealing drugs, and uh, but you know something about these guys they were slicker than you thought because they wouldn't either. They would keep it where we thought they kept it, but we couldn't find it, and they wouldn't give it up. I mean, they wouldn't fucking give it up because they knew they weren't going to get killed. But if we were real killers, if we were real killers and we, you know, and maybe fired a couple rounds into their knee first or something, we probably, we probably would have gotten what, what we came there for in many situations. But what happened was the guys, we knew every drug spot in the neighborhood. I mean, think about it. We're the patrol. You know, it's five or six of us that are involved. So my eyes, if my eyes don't catch it, your eyes might. So there's five or six guys that are involved in this whole thing. And, and we all know. I know 150 spots, at least. I go to bed at night and, and go over every spot in the precinct that I know of. And I take block by block, avenue by avenue. So I go up and down the block in my head every fucking night to see how many spots there were and which ones that I think would be good to hit. I mean, this is what I spend my night doing while I'm just about to fall asleep. So, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a treacherous time. And did you ever have any near-death experiences during that time? I don't know. I mean, I did have a guy threaten to kill me. I mean, more than once. I had a guy on the phone tell me he was going to come kill me. In fact, he told me, I bet a duck right now is going to put a bullet through the window in my head, in my home. So, but no one ever shot at me. And I never shot at anybody. There was also a point, if I'm not mistaken, that... Oh, I did fake shoot some at somebody, though, a couple times. 
just like just, a little desk. Just to scare them. Uh, some guy jumped in front of my car one night uh, on my way home and uh, tried to kill himself. So he pissed me off. So I, I took my fucking little 25 uh, Beretta out and I fired a couple of rounds at, at the ground, you know, 10 feet from him. He called the police. Can you imagine? He calls the police. He tries to get run over by my car. He jumped right in front of my car in the middle of a highway. I hit the brakes, almost hit him, and he's waiting. He wanted to be hit by the car. He was probably trying to sue the police department. No, my private vehicle. He didn't know who I was. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was, it was three in the morning. I was coming home from somewhere. And he jumps in front of the car. He tries to get hit. So then I fucking, you want to get hit, motherfucker? And I just fired a couple of rounds at the ground. Take that. And I left. The police pulled me over about 20 blocks later. They pulled me over, firing rounds at the guy. And then there was also a part, if I'm not mistaken, where you try to circumnavigate the whole system. And instead of working for someone that was selling cocaine, you wanted to sell it yourself. Well, yeah. So how did you start dealing cocaine? So I, first of all, if, if I found cocaine, which I had a couple of times, uh, I would find the market for it. I mean, it was big. Cocaine was a big uh, object back then. Uh, anybody wanted it. If you had it, they wanted it. Um, and then I ended up getting it wholesale pricing from Diaz. And then I found a couple of people after Diaz. Diaz went back to the Dominican Republic and then he went to prison. So after he left, uh, I still had uh, avenues. It was funny because I could walk into a store in uniform and buy cocaine. People would sell it to me. They just didn't care. <laughs> they would, I would tell them I want some cocaine. They'd sell it to me. Well, they probably knew who you were. Well, they trusted me. <laughs> Fucking crazy. And were you using a lot of drugs during this time? Not specifically, but eventually. Can you tell me about that? Um, what, what you were using and how did, so it, how I, did it change you? Yeah, so I probably... Well, so my initial foray into using cocaine I was after a hockey game my partner that I was at the time was not partner that we talk about in the movies and, and stuff like that he wanted to do some cocaine and I never did cocaine and but we, since we were hanging out drinking and, and doing he wanted to he wanted to continue drinking but he wanted to do cocaine because doing cocaine enables you to drink more and uh, keeps you from getting too too hammered and so he pulled out some uh, tin foil with cocaine in it and showed it to me. He says, I'm going to do something. And he says, and you're doing it too. Well, I said, all right, well, I'm your partner. I'm not going to, I don't have to do it, but he said, no, no, no. I want to make sure you do it. So this way we're both on the same page here. I said, okay. So he did some, I did some, and that was it. That was the first time I did cocaine. It was the night of the hockey game between the fire department and the police department in New York city, which is like the biggest hockey night in New York city. Uh, it's bigger than the Islanders versus the Rangers, in, if you know anything about ice hockey. Um, uh, so it's a big rivalry. It's a big party. And, uh, and, and in fact, we won that, we won that game. Um, my brother was the star on the team. And so we, my partner and I did a blast of cocaine. And then uh, I didn't do it for three to four months. And then New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve, I think it was. I figured, let me just do a couple toots for New Year's Eve. Just try it. And then I did it every day for 90 days in a row. And then I ended up in a rehab. I was doing it so much. And then uh, off and on for the next 10 years, whatever it was, you know, seven years, whatever it was before I got arrested. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this a lot on the podcast, but I'm a recovering drug addict. Okay. And um, I, my, main, you. my yeah. main drug was cocaine as well. Really? But okay. I used to do Rohypnol. Oh. I used to do a lot of benzos. Um, mm. Weed, alcohol. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Did heroin for a bit. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, smoked a few, bit of tuck every now and then. <laughs> you did it all. I did. Psychedelics. Like garbage pail. Yeah. So yeah. I, I can relate to yeah. that. Yeah. And um, I'm sure for you, it was probably hard being around. So, well, not hard, but you were around so many, you were around drugs all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of so, unavoidable. So yeah. Well, so uh, well, I put myself in, in a position to. I loved I loved the power of being able to be the guy that had the cocaine. There was something to it, you know. It was a powerful thing, and you may know the experience as well. And the money, if I wasn't spending money on it, which I generally wasn't, because I was making money by selling it. So. To me, it was unlimited supply, right? Because I didn't do a lot of cocaine. And I still, in my life afterward, when I had some, uh, what would you call, uh, relapses, I uh, I never used a lot of cocaine, but I used it. So I, I used it to enhance rather than rather than it was the addiction, if that makes sense. It's just the difference between I have to do it or hey, I'll do a couple bumps. That's how I used cocaine. I did a couple bumps. And uh, it was a leveler for me. And at this time, did you consider yourself a cop, a gangster, or a drug trafficker? Yeah, that was a, that was a question asked of me at the uh, Marlin Commission hearings, which I'm famous for. And I said both, you know, and uh, it's an oxymoron to say both, right? What are you? you? You can't be both. But I felt like both, you know, because you can only be one, right? You can either be a cop or a bad guy. So, uh but you know, it's odd because I felt I, and this is an, this is a this is a an oxymoron. I felt as though I was a good police officer in many ways. You would have been a good undercover police officer. I if they gave me the opportunity to be so, I would have loved it. Sure, they would have got a, a lot of good work out of me. That's for sure. And um, there was a another story. It was quite a big part of the documentary about a, a cop called um, Robert Venable. Right, he's dead. Can yeah. you tell me what happened surrounding that instance? So that was a incident. very sad moment, obviously. You know, we don't take this lightly. And I uh, I, I mourn that uh, loss uh, quite often. In fact, uh, I remember that night that he was killed. I uh, was working um, with Kenny and we had picked up a, a an armed robbery suspect. and We put him in the back of the patrol car. We were taking him to the precinct for somebody else. I don't know. We called him for somebody else anyway. And uh, as we pull him to the back of the precinct, Bang, 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 comes over the radio, shots fired, uh, 1013, a live call, not a phone call, a live, you know, actual radio transmission. Um, Bradford and um, Bradford and Pitkin. So as soon as we hear it, I got a guy in the back of a patrol car. What am I going to do? I, I hear a cop screaming for help. So I'm, I just throw the guy out of the car. Just get out. <laughs> just get out. Find your way. He's handcuffed. Just get out. <laughs> See ya. I just take off. And I head over to uh, Bradford and, and Central saying Thadford and Pitkin. And I'm screaming in the fucking radio. It's Bradford and Pitkin. P.S. We show up at Bradford and Pitkin. And uh, as we pull up, I mean, the fucking gunpowder is still in the air. Uh, I'm hearing gunshots go off as I'm pulling up. And this is and I'm and I'm seeing a, 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 a transit uniformed transit sergeant with a man in his arms. And the guy is huge. Not the transit sergeant, but the, the guy that shot. I don't know who he is. And it's a black guy. And the guy goes, he's a cop. Now this sergeant's walking with him in the street like this. I couldn't get him in the patrol car to get him to the hospital. Because he was so big. He was so big. His legs were hanging out the fucking door. 
But we're driving down Pickett Avenue with the body and with the with the dead shot cop. He's shot in the head. He got shot right in the middle of his head and out the back. And um, the blood was coming out of the front of his head. And we we put him in the car and we're driving down Pickett Avenue. I'm giving over the whole transmission. Uh, Picking to Penn, Penn to Linden, Linden to Linden to to, to Brookdale, and um, I'm screaming over the directions so that the cops out there in the street could block off any anything in my way. I don't know if they did or didn't, but I just I just I just I, I didn't even see the traffic. I just went bang. I just took off. <laughs> uh, I just fucking and you 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 couldn't imagine the streets I had to traverse under the L. You know the elevated train and cut through uh, just New York City. Yeah, just. I just, I went opposite the traffic. Traffic coming at me, I went right at them. That's the easiest way to, it's the easiest way to beat traffic. You know, you can't go behind cars. You go right Because they can all see you They can move. see you and move, right? The ones behind you, they don't fucking have no clue. So, um, yeah, so we raced to the hospital with him and blood coming out of his head. And then guy says, he's got a vest on. I said, so fucking move it. I mean, <laughs> don't just talk about it. Do something. Pump on his chest. Keep him alive. Anyway, we showed up at the hospital and uh, eh, it was... They didn't know he was a cop, and then they realized he was a cop. They started to work harder on him, and uh, unfortunately, he he wasn't going to make it anyway. He was he was basically out of it, you know. When he hit in the middle of your forehead with a fucking round of, from him, I think it was from um, um, Mac Ten or something like that. I'm not sure, but it was it was a high velocity weapon that hit him, and um, yeah, he. Uh, he eventually expired about two in the morning and um, it was a tough day, you know, because while I wasn't responsible for it, I felt it that because I was condoning drug activity in the neighborhood, I felt as though I, uh, you had like a, you had played into it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to say that I did it because I didn't No, And I certainly didn't know the persons that did it, nor did I, was I involved with them, those people? But in some way, you're still involved, right? Because you allow this to happen in, in your neighbor. You're, you're, you're not dissuade. So even, so look, it probably could have and would have happened anyway without my wrongdoings. But you still feel because you're dirty that you... Or contributor, because I mean, I mean, Pablo Escobar contributed to that guy's death, right? Because as a cop, you're not actively stopping crime, right? You're, I'm allowing it to flourish in many ways. Yeah. Yes, and so, so you just feel guilt for yeah, that. Yeah, the, the, it was a horrible feeling. It, 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 and it haunts me today. And you bring it up, and it, it twists me still. Um, there's, a, there's a man that's dead due to illicit activity, and that I was part of illicit activity that, in some manner. Or rather, while it didn't directly cause this, it's still, you know, you made a right-hand turn and the whole world changed from that, you know, if you make a left, mm. the world is different the minute you change, turn directions. So to me, when I made the wrong turn, which was to go corrupt, uh, I affected that in some respect. And um, yeah, it was heavy on my mind. And I and I forgot that his name was Robert. I thought it was John. And I got castigated for not knowing his first name. Well, I mean, I knew it was Venable. I I put the guy, you know, I saw I saw his name, but I didn't know his first and people castigated me for not knowing his fucking first name, which which is unfortunate. I should know it, but I didn't. I never I thought it was John. For some reason mm -hmm. I thought it was John. Maybe there's a John Venable that I knew, so I just adopted the name. But I caught, caught a lot of shit for not knowing his name. 
And uh, but the funny, the, the funny, not funny. The odd thing is that when I reunited with Kenny for the documentary that we did, um, we met at his park, John Venable, uh, Robert Venable Park, and uh, it was it was pretty touching to be there, you know. So, uh, yeah. I, how do you say sorry for a loss that you that you maybe helped contribute to in a way by not being the person that you should have been, you know? It's, yeah, it's a little tough to swallow. And why didn't other cops turn you in? So that's not an accurate statement, although it's it's partly accurate. Other cops were talking and notifying people that they thought I was corrupt because I didn't show you corruption if I didn't trust you. So... If you weren't corrupt, you wouldn't know that I was corrupt. You might have heard that I was corrupt. You might have seen something that looked corrupt, but you would never know that what I did was corrupt because I wouldn't tell you I'm getting eight grand a week from Adam Diaz. You know, but when I showed up with a bag full of money and I was buying rounds at the at the bar, you were happy to fucking take them, you know? And then you wanted to know. I, I tell you this, this is an odd story. We had a, a we had 12 cops come to Kenny and myself and say, we want in. Twelve. Twelve rookie cops came to us and said, we want in. And I I was actually disheartened by that because I wasn't like this from the start. And I, I, I earned this fucking corruption, you know. Oddly, I, uh, you know, I worked my way to being corrupt. I wasn't, I wasn't disillusioned at first. I thought I could be a patrolman. I thought I could be a police officer. I thought I could do a good job. But these guys were out of the academy six months. They want to know how do, how do we get in? I mean, fucking kidding me? Go wear some shoes out. Become a policeman first before you ask to be corrupt. I was, I was, I was, I was appalled. Fuck, do you want to be corrupt for? You don't even know how to be a cop yet. How would you guys treat cops? that were considered to be rats. Oh, they wouldn't be around us. They would not be around you. You wouldn't be around them. They, you, would, you wouldn't let them around you. And if they were around you by force, let's say like putting your, you wouldn't speak to them. It would be like a, a death silence in the patrol car. You wouldn't have any interaction with them. You know, they'd be ostracized. Another big part of the documentary was, it wasn't a big part, it was mentioned quite a bit though, was that cops don't turn in other cops. Right. Which is kind of crazy to me <laughs> because your whole job is to serve and protect. Correct. But the people that are serving and protecting are not doing either of those things. They're making things worse. Not everyone, obviously. No, no. A but, handful. Right. But why do cops do that? Why is it... <clears throat> Why, yeah, that's, that's the, why that's, do they want to protect each other so much? Right, right, right. <laughs> Can you help me with the answer to this? Because the answer is in life itself. So I have to leave my house every day and go out there and, and do a job that if I'm not corrupt, that requires me to risk my life to save yours. And so when... I risk my life to save your life. The guy next to me saves my life because you put me in harm's way or someone else puts me in harm's way. This guy here, this say Michael Dowd, this person, has helped save me in the most difficult times. 
So I see him take some money from a drug dealer. Who gives a fuck? He just saved my life last week. I called the backup. He showed up. He dragged the guy, put him in the car, and drove him to the precinct for me. You know, he allowed me to go home without breaking an arm or leg or getting beat up or shot or stabbed by some perpetrator. This is how, I mean, it's like soldiers don't, I don't. You go through a lot together. Yeah, when you create that, it's not, you, you, you want to work in an environment that gives you safety. Even if someone's doing something corrupt, they can still save your life, right? I mean, <laughs> there's uh, many a story about the fireman lights a fire, right? <laughs> but he goes in and rescues somebody in the middle of the fire, right? I mean, th these things happen. So I'd rather have a corrupt cop come save my dead ass than have him look at me and say, die. That makes sense. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, the thing is this: because I, I would rather have a clean cop save your life, save my life. But yeah. if the dead, if the corrupt one shows up, but, but I will guess, you take it? I guess the corrupt <laughs> cop as well might have a bit more uh, street smarts as you see, well. So you see, yeah. you're getting that's what happens yeah. we, when when the corrupt guys showed up. You probably felt safer, actually. They felt safer. Yeah. Because they knew shit wasn't going to go. It's like, I don't want to go into a dangerous area with someone that lives in... Long Island. Yeah. Opposed I want to go, go from... I want to go with a drug dealer. Yeah. Or you, with a gangster. Right. You want to hang out with a tough guy. Because that's yeah. how you would feel safe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, can you tell me, just before we come towards the end here, can you tell me one of the craziest things that ever happened to you during this time? I just want to open it up. Whatever... Story comes to mind. See, just I, something that I, I, was just I've been like, asked this before, but when you live a life of craziness, it's impossible it's to impossible pick up to one pick moment. Up a yeah. spot. I mean, I, I, the craziest thing that happened to me was when I got arrested. I mean, it was like insane. The whole okay, scene. So, so let, let's get to that. It's just insane. So can you walk us through how you got caught? No, it was too long. <laughs> it's fucking long, man. How I got caught in the end, in the end, how I got caught. Can you just tell me about the first time they came after you. The first arrest. The first arrest. So <clears throat> I'm working in the 94th precinct with my partner, Thomas, at the time, Tom Massia. And um, so it was the day after the Rodney King riots uh, started in LA. So this, the whole city was tense. And um, yet there was no calls on my radio, like nothing. I'm like, this is fucking odd. This is the second day in a row there was no calls on my radio. Why? Well, I didn't know this, but they had, they were already going to arrest me. They knew they were going to arrest me. And, um, so they had me pick up, uh, the inspector, one of the inspectors or something, oddly enough, and drive him around to one or two locations. And he asked us a couple of questions about ourselves, uh, our careers. So they knew, the, I didn't know this at the time, but they were setting us up. They were going to arrest us soon. Okay. You guys. Oh yeah. Oh, that's great. How long you worked here? Oh, good, good. Okay. Have a nice life. Like he was, he was just. He was getting to know the guys that are about to get arrested because they told them we're going to arrest them. I didn't know that they told him because he didn't tell me. So no calls. Eventually, they call me to the precinct. They go, 10-2. So I go, how about a 10-1? No, 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 10-2. Because 10-1 would have been, I would have called the precinct. They said, no, come into the precinct. I want to speak to you. I looked at my partner. I said, this is odd. We don't get 10-2s that often. And when we do get a 10-2, it's usually something that they want us to do. But there's nothing going on here. This is a little weird. And because uh, the only call we got in two days was, was this one ten two. That's it. 
And uh, so I pulled up to the precinct. I saw a car to my left. I said, ooh, that doesn't look right. Two guys in the front seat of the car sitting there. I never saw them before. I walked into the precinct, and then sure enough, they come in behind me with their, with their badges in hand. Internal affairs were taking for a drug-ordered, uh, department-ordered drug test. Okay. Anyway, so I fucking failed the drug test. I, get, I lose the job. No big deal. It just, it just didn't sit right. Something, was, something more was wrong because I had seen them follow me during the day. Unmarked cars were following. And they weren't New York City. They were definitely not New York City. And I didn't want to spook my partner. But I saw them following me. In the patrol car, they were following us. We had just picked up a half a kilo and sold it that day to Kenny. So, you know, that may be why, but but I didn't know why they would be following us because I get followed a lot. So I didn't know what this one was about. And sure enough, it was, uh, so so they called us into the precinct. They take us for the uh, Department of Drug Test, which I had cocaine in my pants. I couldn't get rid of. They were, they were everywhere. I couldn't, I was going to throw the cocaine, you know, I'll open the window and throw the cocaine out and get rid of it. No, not happening for me. I couldn't get rid of it because <laughs> they had the, no handles on the window. There's no handles on the door. I couldn't do anything. Fuck. So I said to the guys, I said, this is a little odd. So I started smoking cigarettes. Couldn't open the windows. Nah, we'll, we'll choke with you. Dude, can you open the fucking window? They wouldn't even open their window in the front. Because I would have reached up and threw out the fucking cocaine. Nothing. Anyway, I'm like, this is weird. I go, this seems like a little bit more than a drug test, if you ask me. You got me in the backseat of a car with no handles? No, we're just taking it for a department order drug test. Now, wait a minute. Now, think about this. I'm a fucking human being. I don't have to be in this car right now. But I do it like a subservient little dick. I'm in the back of this car, like, listening to guys that are about to arrest me. And I know something's not right, but I don't want to believe it. I'm like the ultimate optimist. And then I get out of the patrol car, out of the unmarked car, and they're everywhere. There's fucking lines of cops. I'm like, what the fuck is this for a drug test? I get upstairs to the uh, 16th floor, 17th, 16th floor, and there's this lieutenant who's been waiting to piss test me for three years. He's like, yeah, he's so happy. the guy you parked in? <laughs> no, 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 okay. but he was one of them type, you know, yeah. little fucking prick. And he was trying to get me for years, and now he's got me smiling. He go, I go, yeah, you're happy, huh? You <laughs> I'm looking at him, like, you're a happy motherfucker right now, aren't you, you cocks? I've just had a, I just had a fucking half a gallon of vodka, a fucking big drink of vodka, some couple blasts of cocaine. I'm going to burn this test right up. It's going to be perfect. They're going to be happy. I finished. I hand him the pig. Like, there you go, motherfucker. Take it. <laughs> I'm done. I know. I'm fucking thaw, getting to get fired. And then in walks Suffolk County Police Department, Suffolk County Detective so-and-so. Yeah. I go, Coletti was his name. My, my mother's cousin. Suffolk County Detective Coletti, you're under arrest for us. Conspiracies to distribute narcotics. Like, okay, yeah, all right. What are you, now what? So they arrested you in in New York City in the in the the um, police department medical building. So they arrest you, and then there was a photo taken of you and two other cops chained together. Yeah, it's called a, a cherry daisy chain. Daisy chain. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, a daisy chain. So that you were all walking out. And someone took a photo. Right. And that photo, what happened when that photo got out? I don't know. I wasn't, I didn't see it. I mean, there was. <laughs> I was in prison. <laughs> but there was coverage all over the place. All over the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all over the world in Germany. It, it was, was a massive story. All over the fucking world. Yeah. Um, they put it on the front page of LA Times. So they would fucking calm down LA. Because, oh, there's corrupt cops in New York now. 
because they just had the Rodney King meetings in L.A. And um, it was a good photo. Yeah, it was a cool photo. It was a good photo, to be honest with you. So then what happened after you were arrested? Did you, you were in prison or you were like in holding? So, yeah, so holding, then I got out on bail. What I, happened when you got out on bail? Well, when Kenny set me up with the, uh, put wires on his body and, and began to set me up into this operation that the feds created. And can you tell me about that operation? So, so people don't understand the depths of it because it's deep and we're going to do a movie about it. So I, I, I'm, but you don't, you want to skip over it. It's just, it's just deep. And the bottom line is they set me up. Kenny put on a wire. Kenny, your partner. My partner. And uh, while out on bail, and he encouraged me to do something that I normally wouldn't do. And, uh, but because I was a greedy motherfucker looking to leave the country, I put myself in another horrific situation. And um, it cost me <laughs> dearly. Yeah, it probably cost me, they were offered me three to nine in the state. And instead, the feds picked me up. And then, uh, you know, I was facing life. When I walked into federal prison, I was facing life. And I walked out of there with a 14-year sentence, which people would say is a gift, you know, and in some ways it is. And how much time did you end up serving? 12 and a half years. What was that like? What was life like in prison? Um, it was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep giving, don't you? It was very exciting. <laughs> no, nah, fucking prison sucks. But uh, to tell you the truth, I actually had a pretty decent sentence. You know, I don't mean time. Every day is long, you know. I don't know if you did a day yourself, but if you did, every day is... I've been arrested twice, but I've never gone to prison. Right. Every day is a long day. Um, and the time actually goes fairly quickly, but the days are long. Um, but the reality is, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to stand on my own and, and be willing. So you have to be willing. If you're in prison, you have to be willing to die. And if you're willing to die, you'll live. If you're not willing to die, then you'll probably be beat up and, and fucked with. So. Did you make any, I mean, were you committed to stopping your life of crime at that point? Yeah, sure. You, you were done with that. Well, you know, so, so in prison, not yet. It would take a couple of years of being in prison to see the light and to recognize that I, I would say so, and this is a good lesson. I would say that most people, it takes them a year to three to begin to change their thinking. Because if you notice, most people do a short little sentence, they're right back to crime. Well, it's, it's the same thing with uh, addiction. Where when when I was younger, I went into rehab for three weeks, right. and it just wasn't enough time because you're right. just kind of getting sober at that point. Mm -hmm. It's just leaving your system. You're feeling a little bit normal, and then you get thrown back on the streets, yep. and suddenly you're right back to right it. back it. And I, the the second I got released from rehab at the age of sixteen, right. I went straight back to using drugs. Right. Um, I went again when I was twenty one, and I stayed for six months. Right. Right. And I stumbled when I came out That's after okay. a few months, but I've been clean for four years now. Good so for you. I can see what you mean by it takes time. Yes, it does. It, it, it takes a couple of lessons or some real time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but that's the only for people who actually want to change. Some people go in, they're committed to come out as a better criminal, right? So that's a different approach. They go to prison and then while they're in prison, they learn the, the better approach to criminality rather than learning the better approach to life in general and overall living. So yeah. I would say at the five-year mark, you know. The one to three is needed for many people that, that it's entrenched in their thought process. But the five-year mark, you're, you're, you're done or you're never going to be done. That's where, because at five years in prison, you no longer really think about the outside world. You think about the inside world. You have thoughts of the outside world, but you're thinking in your daily process becomes prison life. 
You're not, in the first three or four years, you're thinking, I got to get out there. I got I to get over this fence. I gotta, there's got to be a way. But then after the five year cometh of ages of age, you recognize that I'm going to do this sentence and I'm going to do it my way now. I'm going to do it for a way to benefit me. So yeah, so it's 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 not it's not an easy uh, awakening, and I can see why people that do a very short stints, like a short rehab, they go, go back to they the go, life they of go back to it. Yeah. And during your time, how much money do you think you made in total? Um, in the rogue aspects, I probably made a half a million dollars in rogue stuff, which is not a lot of money, but back then it was a considerable amount of money. Probably like one and a half million dollars today. Yeah. Right. And did you get to keep anything? No. You lost your condo, you lost your cars. Uh, so most of those things were actually lost through non-payment. You stopped paying them? I stopped paying them because I wasn't there. Okay. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make that nut every month. And the people that were renting, because I was renting homes out, they stopped paying their rent because the guy's not here. <laughs> Fuck them. And just coming towards the end, biggest regrets? So there's two things, okay? And, I, and I'm, I, I, I'm honest. So I wish I stole more. And you wish you hid more. I wish I stole more because I had many opportunities or I wish I never did it at all. Mm. So it's like one or the other. But the reality is if I just done my time, my 20 years as a police officer, I would have all I needed in my life. But because I didn't do the right things, my life has been pretty much a modern day tragedy. But, uh, the, but the one good thing is I get to speak to guys like you now and, and share my story. And we'll be doing a movie and stuff like that so, uh, about it, which is, which is exciting, you know, but not everybody's going to come out like that. Not everybody's going to get a story or get a, or get a movie mm. or get a documentary, which is very well done. The seven, the seven five. Did you see the documentary itself? Brilliant. Yeah, it was very well done. And, and so they followed my lead. They, they did what I said in that documentary and, and Tiller Russell, who, the director, he, um, he followed my lead. I told him to do it this way. I said, just make them not hate me. I said, if you make them not hate me, you'll have a, a good fellas in uniform. And but it, often in movies and documentaries, even the villain, which in this case was you, me, yeah. um, is made to be a likable guy. And you are a likable guy. Thank you. And it's, it's something that I've noticed with people that I've worked with that have done really bad things. I mean, I've worked with murderers, gangsters, uh, some bad people, yeah. but they're still human. Right. And there's a lot of redeeming qualities, but also people can change. And people do change, but I mean, it's still in them though. It's just, they put it to rest. Yes. And last piece of advice I want you to lay down. So um, <laughs> I, I think most people reach a point in their life where they have to ask themselves, do I do the right thing the hard way right. or, the, or the hard thing the easy way? Right, right. What would you say to those people? I would say, if you're willing to suffer the consequences of your actions, do what you feel. But there's consequences to every action. I personally wish that I had done it the hard way, not the easy way, which ended up being harder than the right way. Yeah. You know, the turtle and the rabbit. The story's there. It's, it's been told for a thousand years, you know. Eventually that turtle... Turtle's 100 years old. The rabbit lives about a, a month, six months, stops. Some eagle comes down, eats it'll, it for lunch. It'll eventually catch up. It eventually catches up. Yeah. There's no free lunch out there. There's no free lunch. You're going to pay for it one way or the other, whether it's self-implosion, uh, addiction, um, 
abuse, family abuse, loss of children, loss of wife. I mean, I had a perfect life. I had to throw it all away. There's no free lobster lunches. There's no free lobster lunches. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And thanks everyone for watching. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wide Awake Podcast and I'll see you all very soon. Cheers.